0: Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. My name is Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. My guest today is Leila Ishik, and this episode is a little bit different. So if you've listened to the last couple episodes, I've been talking about how I'm thinking about revamping the sort of premise of cognitive revolution, moving away from the sort of, you know, oh, personal side of the intellectual journey thing and and more towards just engaging with ideas directly. And this episode was a little bit different in that I started to take more of that approach and in particular, I was just interested to talk to Layla about her work. The way I came across it is that, I, you know, I, my, my personal research interest has been in, in theory of mind and social cognition and how we understand and interpret the behavior of other people. And I think she's doing some of the coolest related work on that. It's not necessarily that field Directly, you know, it's a different thing than than my, you know, kind of way that I personally like approach it, but she's doing some of the most interesting cutting edge research. I think it's going to become really prominent over the next few years. Her official title is Claire Booth Luce Assistant Professor at Johns Hopkins, which has this really cool cognitive science department, a lot of interesting people there. And clearly they believe she's going to be a huge deal in the years to come. I'll just read a little bit from her biography off her of her website because it's a good description of, of her research. Humans perceive the world in rich visual detail. In just a fraction of a second, we not only detect the objects and people in our environment, but also quickly recognize people's emotions, goals, actions, and social interactions. Detecting these higher-level properties is extremely challenging, even for state-of-the-art computer vision systems. How do humans extract all of this complex information, which has speed and ease? So I think one of the things that's really cool about how she addresses that question is that it really is this very sophisticated combination of behavioral experiments, neuroimaging, intracranial recording, machine learning, computational modeling, and all of that sort of stuff. And definitely a very cool program of research. She did her PhD at MIT where she was advised by Tommy Poggio. And, and she also did a, a postdoc where she was working, I believe pri- primarily for Nancy Canwisher, who I've also had on the show and is also super cool and an incredible researcher. So if you like this episode, that's definitely a one to check out as well. Though, again, that one focuses more on Nancy's story rather than her research per se. So... Yeah, we talk about a few of of Layla's recent papers, in particular a, a 2021 paper on functional selectivity for social interaction perception in the human superior temporal sulcus during natural viewing. So that is the other thing that I really am fascinated with about her research. Not only is she taking all these super sophisticated approaches to it, but she's trying to incorporate naturalistic stimuli in a meaningful way in her research, which I personally think is definitely a forefront of of connecting psychology and neuroscience and cognitive science and everything we can learn from that with something closer to our actual human experience. So we talk about some of the cool projects she's done and I look forward to see where she takes all of her research in the future. So if you want to support the show The best way to do that is to subscribe to my Substack newsletter. You can find that at codycommerce.substack.com. And uh, yeah, like I said, you know, rethinking what the show is going to look like. And so if you want to follow along with that, then definitely subscribing to that newsletter is the best way to do so. So thank you for listening. And without any further ado, here is Layla Ishak. I, guess I want to start off by asking you. So you studied biomedical engineering in undergraduate. How did you get from that into I don't know what academic label you identify by, but you know computational neurosciency, you know psychology stuff. What what did all that look like for you?
1: I had not thought much about neuroscience or the brain before I came to college, and then I took the required class on neuroengineering and the section on vision just like blew my mind. I had never really thought about vision as a computational problem and how challenging it was. And those challenges combined with the fact that it feels so effortless to humans also was occurring around the same time I was starting to get very interested in AI. And that really drew me to biologically inspired vision, but, but more generally AI. I thought in my PhD, I really wanted to make biologically inspired computer vision models or cognitively inspired computer vision models. And I went to MIT and I joined Tommy Pojo's lab to ostensibly do that. But when I was doing that, I felt like this, you know if, unsatisfied is the right word, but I just felt like there was this distance between what I was modeling and what we actually knew about the brain. And that's what really sort of led me to start doing neuroimaging work and human experiments to try to understand more about the brain. Ultimately, my interest was always mostly motivated by the goal to understand intelligence, both human and artificial. But that's that's sort of how I went from like biomedical engineering to I guess cognitive neuroscientist or computational cognitive neuroscientist. I guess the other thing that really always motivated me was things that were easy for humans, but hard for computers. And when I started my PhD, we really just didn't have computer vision systems that could even recognize objects. And that was really the main vision problem everyone was studying. But I guess maybe like halfway through my PhD, the deep learning revolution started. And the intro to all my talks kind of got killed because like now we had computers that albeit have many limitations, but you can't really say that like they can definitely recognize objects quite well. And that really led me to think more about what humans use vision for. And so much of what we do when we're looking around the world is social, right? I'm not really noticing your tapestry in the background or your chair or your microphone, right? I'm, I'm looking, we spend most of our time looking at people and thinking about them.
0: So let's draw a line from that kind of moment where, like you said, the, the intro to your talks, the bottom fell out of that. How would you describe the research program that you're on now? What are some of the pieces of that?
1: Our lab is really interested in taking, I would say we take like a computational vision t- scientist type of approach to studying uh, social perception and cognition or or social vision, I guess you would say, because almost everything we study is is vision. And so our goal is to really understand humans' rich visual social perception abilities using a lot of the vision science and cognitive neuroscience and computational tools that have been so successful in other aspects of vision.
0: So I guess I I want to talk about naturalistic stimuli. And this is this is the thing that kind of makes me super excited to see how your research is going to develop over the long term because when I look at the the kind of stuff that you're doing and and you know it's not like this is my wheelhouse or anything but Knowing, you know, kind of coming from the background that I have, which has social psychology and computational cognitive science, I look at what you're doing and say, okay, well, here's someone, here's here's a lab that is trying to take the sophisticated, rigorous stuff that we've, we've developed for, you know, computational approaches to cognition and trying to now apply that to these much more complicated naturalistic stimuli, like like what, what when, we're, when we're actually looking at something, not just like a lab generated little dot thing that's moving around, but like something that we're actually likely to look at, like a movie or whatever. What, what does that look like with, with how you approach naturalistic stimuli in the lab? How do, you, how do you start to think about all that?
1: So I really got interested in studying natural stimuli in my postdoc, especially when you move into the social domain, the gap between what we do in the lab and real world social vision is just so huge. It seemed like a a natural type of question to ask. And really, we have more and more tools to move into this more natural domain. But there are like tons of challenges with studying natural stimuli, right? They're not designed. I mean, they're not even stimuli, right? Most of the time we're using Hollywood movies, which are not designed for experimental purposes. And so I actually, in my postdoc, faced a lot of challenges and kind of got disillusioned with movies and was like, okay, that's it. We're just going to forget about that for a while. And then we really came back to it as a, I mean, I guess for lack of a better word, a pandemic project, our lab had only been open for a few months when the pandemic started. We had, had IRB approval for one month and then like couldn't scan anymore, right? So it wasn't like we had all this unanalyzed data. But at the same time, I felt really lucky because there were all these natural neuroscience movie data sets, MRI data sets in particular, online. And so along with a really talented postdoc in my lab, Hamie Lee Masson, we decided to see if we could revisit those with some of the newer computational approaches to tease apart the different social components in the movies. Because I think a major challenge is that it's so hard in a movie to say any effect you're seeing is due to any one thing. So for example, a lot of what we study is how you recognize other people's social interactions. But when two people are interacting in a movie, they're also often speaking. So you have all their auditory input, the linguistic content of their speech, their faces. And so how do you isolate each of those components to understand how the brain is processing them?
0: So let's maybe go through that timeline and kind of look a little closer at each piece. So you mentioned your postdoc, you uh, tried working with with movies and and natural stimuli, and it kind of hit a roadblock. Can you say more about what that looked like and what the the issue that came up there is and what what you were trying to do?
1: So I guess maybe the the main difference in approach is the thing I realized in my postdoc is I also was studying social interactions. In almost every commercial movie you watch, it almost always has a face and a social interaction <laughs> occurring throughout most of the movie. Otherwise, it's just a really boring movie to watch.
0: <laughs> what are the components of social interaction? Is it just that there's like two people and they have some sort of communicative... Thing going on between them either communicative
1: or in a movie it's almost always communicative right most of the movies we watch but it, you could also imagine it being some sort of action that's physically directed towards
0: somebody else I'm just trying to make sure that I fully understand I know it seems like a simple concept social interaction I just want to make sure I understand that I, I'm not just being like okay I, I, I kind of understand that in an abstract way I guess my question is why is this the unit of interest to you is it because it's sufficiently ambiguous? You can say in a naturalistic stimuli, it's like, okay, well, here's two people there. It's a social interaction. And then well, this this person just by himself cleaning his room. Therefore, it's not a social interaction. And now we can look at those two, two different things. So why is this the unit of interest?
1: So I think that where the unit was really defined for me and based on others' work was actually not naturalistic stimuli, but in controlled stimuli. In my postdoc, we found that There seems to be dedicated cortical territory that responds when you watch dyads that are engaged in social interactions, either depicted all with controlled stimuli. So either pairs of point light figures that are either moving towards each other or doing two stationary independent activities. You see this with Hider and Simmel style shape animations. And then work from Luba, Papayo and others has shown that you seem to have a lot of selectivity for pairs of bodies that are facing each other versus not facing each other. And so that sort of unit of a dyad interacting seems to be something that is processed special visually and, and in the brain. And so then it was a question of how we can extend that to, to what the social interactions we see in the real world.
0: I hate to go too deep on, on too simple of a, of a concept, but it you know it reminds me of, of one of my favorite arguments in, in cognitive science, which comes from Michael Tomasello's, I think 2000, Cultural Origins of Cognition. His argument is that when you kind of look at evolutionary history, there's not like a bunch of cognitive shifts that can happen in, in ev- evolutionary time between, you know, sort of cognitively modern humans and things that, that, that are the precursors to that. And therefore we're looking for one big thing, and his one big thing that he proposed that we're looking for is joint attention. The ability to go from dyads to triads, where it's like, okay, here's the, the thing, I'm holding up my, my pen, and, and I'm going to symbolically manipulate your attention to say like, hey, we're all going to look at this thing uh, that I'm holding. And this seems to be at least sympathetic with that idea that there's some specialized neural territory for being able to identify this happening in other people to to some degree.
1: The last thing you said, especially, in that everything I'm talking about, and sometimes I am not clear about this, is is in other people. So it's the third-party perception of these things in other people. And actually, we know that primates do this. Primates seem to also have Portions of their cortex that respond when they watch other monkeys interacting versus not interacting. And so that's a little different than your first person or second person, I guess, joint attention that you engage in with others as well. I mean, it's it's an open question to what extent those representations are shared or overlaps.
0: Now that I understand the basic concept of interacting with another <laughs> con-specific, which, you know, it's been the pandemic for the last couple of years, so I haven't had very much social interaction, which is why it's such a foreign concept. You'll have to forgive me on that, but... I started off asking, so what were you trying to do in this experiment? What was the stumbling block? And then sort of let's tie that into to what you started looking at later on.
1: We did do some stuff with the movies that I think was interesting, which is that you, a lot of it back then was even just proof of concept for how you might align neural signals in a continuous movie. So also this was different because it was with intracranial, but mostly ECOG data. And so a lot of that was proof of concept, showing how stereotyped neural responses were across different repetitions of short movie clips, and then also showing that you could even decode visual visual information like whether or not a face was on a screen based on neural data. The stumbling block there with respect to social interactions was really twofold. One is the temporal resolution of ECOG is almost too good for these questions. You know, it's, it becomes really hard and natural stimuli to say when exactly a social interaction begins.
0: Uh, Can you say more about ECOG? These are intracranial
1: recordings in patients who have pharmacologically intractable epilepsy. So this is epilepsy that is extremely severe. Often patients have multiple seizures a day, so it's really debilitating, and they are not responsive to medication. So the treatment in these extreme cases is actually a cortical resection. And before they undergo that brain surgery, they first undergo pretty extensive mapping where electrodes are implanted either deep into the brain or in the case of the data we had for that paper on the surface, grids on the surface of the brain. And they are monitored in the hospital for about a week or so to determine the precise location of the seizures, other functional um, properties of the tissue that might be resected, et cetera. And during that time, many of these patients are extremely generous and willing to participate in our experiments. And so it's a really unique opportunity to record from the human brain these patients are amazing. They're so generous with their time. And I think this points to one of the many benefits of movies, which is that it's a lot easier to ask someone to watch a movie than it is to like show them you're really boring stimuli for two hours. Here's the other thing about that data though, is that the electrode location is determined clinically and different for every person. Two people could have their electrodes covering totally different parts of their cortex to determine even where to put the electrodes, they first do a a ton of non-invasive tests like EEG, for example, to get a rough idea of where the seizure location is. And that's where they put the grid. So it could be over visual cortex, motor cortex, et cetera. And that varies from patient to patient. Mm -hmm.
0: But that's a positive for you as the the person analyzing these data is that you've got this really fine grained resolution.
1: Exactly. And both spatially and temporally. Except, like I said, one of the stumbling blocks, when you're looking at higher level aspects of perception um, and cognition, the temporal integration window gets larger, right? And so labeling these movies with this... Trying to even determine what the onset time of these different high level aspects are is challenging. So that, that was one roadblock. And then I think the... Second roadblock is that the method I was using was trying to segment the movie into scenes with a face and scenes without a face and trying to look for neural differences or scenes with a social interaction and scenes without a social interaction. And there are just almost no scenes without a face or without a social interaction. And the other problem is that the scenes with a face are also almost always the same scenes with a social interaction. And so those were really the technical stumbling blocks that I faced.
0: So like you said that had a kind of proof of concept sort of uh, a thing to it. It it, it laid groundwork for future stuff. What are the questions that you feel like you can get at with naturalistic stimuli?
1: I, I think one of the findings with controlled stimuli was that we seem to have a region in cortex that responds when you watch other people interact. And that is different from nearby regions that respond when you see other people's faces or when you engage in theory of mind about other people. And that was interesting and surprising. But some people have rightly criticized studies like that that use only controlled stimuli where each of those things are segregated. So perhaps it's unsurprising that you see differential responses to these different isolated stimuli. Whereas in the real world, just like in a movie, You often see somebody's face. They're often interacting with someone and you're often also trying to reason about their mental state all at once. And so it is still an open question how these processes are integrated or segregated in more real world conditions. And in fact, some prior studies with movies had suggested that when you watch social interactions, it engages the theory of mind network. And so those suggesting that those two processes were actually overlapping. But most studies with movies have never really tried to account for the correlations between all these different movie features. And so that's something we've really been trying to develop and apply new methods for now in the lab to really let us interrogate natural processing with movies.
0: So can you help me understand by taking one of those pairings or one of those interactions and saying, okay, here is an example of how it can play out?
1: Yeah. So for example, one of the datasets we used was subjects viewing the first episode of the show, Sherlock. And so you have a lot of scenes where Watson and Sherlock are speaking. So they're having a social interaction. You also see their face. You also hear their voices. And they're often trying to think about, for example, like what the uh, killer might've been doing. So they're also reasoning about somebody else's mental state. And all of those things are happening at the same time. And we really wanted to understand what brain activity was being driven by each of those different things or ask if that was possible to do. And most studies with movies have really only looked at one of those in isolation. But here we really are arguing that that can be problematic because of those co-occurrences that happen so much in movies.
0: So what's happening in those experiments is that you have Sherlock... You have 500 days of summer, two separate data sets that your lab did not collect. Because like you said, hashtag pandemic, put the kibosh on collecting uh, new data sets in person. And you have, if I recall, 1.5 and three second windows that the episode slash um, movie are, are chopped up into. And for each of those windows, you have a coding that says, okay, here's the nature of the interaction that's happening here?
1: Actually, even more simply, is there an interaction happening here? Eventually, we want to get into more interesting questions, like what is the nature of this interaction? But in this first study, we did not do that.
0: I also think we didn't necessarily flag this, but this is your 2021 neuroimage paper, functional selectivity for social interaction perception in the human superior temporal sulcus during natural viewing. Is that how you would summarize the main findings is a localization of this visually attending to social interaction in a particular brain region, the superior temporal sulcus.
1: Exactly. And in particular, the two things we were interested in was if we could separate that from the perceptual features like faces and voices. And then perhaps more interestingly, if we could separate that from a very related higher-level social-cognitive aspect of the characters engaging in theory of mind. Because prior work had suggested that perhaps when you watch a movie, social interactions are being processed by the theory of mind network, which was in contrast to my prior work with more controlled stimuli.
0: Can you help me uh, understand the connection between sophisticated models, functional localization within the brain, and behavior? How do you view what all that means at a deeper level?
1: So I guess at a very coarse scale, I think functional localization can tell you what functions the brain has decided are important enough that they need their own chunk of cortex and what things are processed in separate versus overlapping ways, right? And all of these are with caveats because our methods are very coarse. And then I really think of modeling as a way to more directly test those hypotheses so if i train a model to do this one thing can it also do this other thing is that computationally beneficial etc i think
0: i'm on board with first of all the computational model saying well look here is this thing that is producing the behavior i'm giving it the same stimuli that i'm giving the human and it's telling me some approximation of what the human is going to do and then if you can match that on to uh, a particular piece of neural real estate and say here is the thing that the model produces this computation is correlated with what we're seeing in in terms of brain activation and this helps us make sense of things that are otherwise ambiguous in the behavioral responses that we're seeing that's a great way of putting it hey cody here So as I've mentioned on the show before, I am graduating from my PhD program pretty soon here, hopefully in spring 2022. And while that's great, it also means I have to start making plans for my next phase. And ideally, I'd like to do this. I'd like to podcast and write and be able to achieve at least a semblance of what looks like a next career step producing this kind of work. So it is time for me to take the pod from something that merely exists to the next level. And part of what this entails is that I am going to be offering a premium subscription to my podcasts and writing. So one of the questions that I've been asking myself recently is, what have I learned from doing this podcast and how has it affected me personally? And so I am starting a segment called CogRev Redux, in which I listen back to my catalog of episodes, starting from my first interview over two years ago, and I edit down the original to a 30-minute show featuring the highlights of what that guest said and and what really stuck with me over that time, as well as my own reflections on where I was when the interview was conducted, and what I was interested in and how that's all changed. And I will also go into any backstory I have with the guest or strange behind-the-scenes antics that happened during the taping that didn't make the final cut. So I will offer two free CogRev Redux episodes. Then from there, they will come out for premium subscribers every other week. With the premium subscription, you also get my series called Reviewed. It's Reviewed. In which I revisit, reread, or reconsider the books, movies, podcasts, or other content that has most impacted me throughout the years. In this show, I love to ask people about the books that have most influenced their thinking. And so now I want to explore my own answers to those questions in greater depth. There's also a new series I'm launching called The Grad Student's Guide to Podcasting. It features everything. I've learned while doing Cognitive Revolution through my PhD, as well as interviews with other graduate student podcasters. Anyway, like I said, this is part of me building out toward my next phase, so I really do appreciate the support. If you are interested in signing up for a subscription, you can check out codycommerce.substack.com. That's codycommerce.substack.com. Even if you just sign up for the free version... It helps a ton to support my future work. Okay, thank you for hearing me out. Now back to the show. You mentioned interesting questions, and so I want to kind of. So I guess one way you could look at the 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 papers that we talked about is that you know that that postdoc one kind of like okay here's proof of concept here's like me sort of broaching this and now here's next level up here is, you know we've got this prior data set and we can find some signal in the messiness that is naturalistic stimuli and and get some cool results from that. What are the questions that you'd really like to be able to answer in the fullness of time that you want to build up to and maybe have an inkling about how to start to address them but don't know the full story of what that's going to look like?
1: Well, I I guess this goes back to my MIT training of like, if I understand it, I should be able to build it. I, I think the dream for me is to have something for social interaction recognition akin to what we have for object recognition right so an idea of the neural computational architectures that give rise to our rich behavior and and a big part of that even for object recognition and face recognition and still is even understanding like what are the behavioral features of relevance and i think that is also an important aspect of what we're hoping to think more about for social interactions as well so beyond just yes or no this is a social interaction what what type of social interaction is it? What are the important types of social interactions? And so I I mentioned that we got into natural stimuli because of the pandemic, which is true. A lot of the work in our lab is trying to move into the more natural domain, but I guess doing it in this in-between ground between like point light figures and movies, which I think for us are like large data sets that are well curated of short video clips. So they're natural, but They sample, hopefully, everyday human experience better than the TV show Sherlock does, for example, and trying to do behavioral modeling and neuroimaging experiments to understand if I just show you like hundreds of videos of short everyday events, how do you divide those? Are social features important for that or not? In what way? What social features? And then how are those represented neurally? And and what might be the computations that we use to extract that information from vision? Those are some of the questions that we're starting to tackle now. We have a new preprint out on some of this
0: work that came out a couple months ago. Tangent, but maybe connected. What are your favorite movies? I'm not like a big movie watcher.
1: I probably watch more TV than movies because i guess i'm tired at the end of the day and a whole movie always seems like too much of a a commitment to get through but i had never seen sherlock or 500 days of summer and then had to watch both in service of labeling 500 days of summer was not my favorite but i enjoyed sherlock and i was like oh maybe i should just watch this series now but then i like started episode 2 and i i was one of the people who labeled some of the features so i
0: just found myself like labeling what was oh, happening God. you should unlearn that behavior
1: it, it's been at least a year. Yeah. So maybe I'll go back and try it. I, I just watched the movie Coda, which was really beautiful. Okay, that's, that's the fast. last movie I saw.
0: I guess the the nature of that question besides just curiosity is like, is there a genre level thing that that, that connects us, right? Because one of the things that you mentioned in this Sherlock stimuli is, like, well, there's a bad guy and, you know, you're trying to figure out, oh, who done it? Whereas 500 Days of Summer has this emotional angst, overtone sort of thing. And so I guess maybe my bias as a non-visual scientist is the first thing that comes to mind for me is not like, oh, like how do we break down visual features? It's more, I guess, whatever I'm trying to say with that genre genre level thing. And so I'm just trying to to think through that a little bit.
1: We started with Sherlock and then we tried to select another movie. It was from a database. There's like 20 movies in that database. And it's interesting that you're thinking of ties between them. That would be different from Sherlock in that it's a romantic movie, not a suspenseful thriller type thing, but that also would still have a lot of representation of both social interactions and theory of mind. And the postdoc in my lab who led the work, Hammy, actually studies social touch perception. And so she actually wanted a romantic movie for that reason, because we thought that there would be a lot of instances of social versus non-social touch. But actually, there was very little of that, which was kind of surprising, even in a romantic movie like that. But there's actually a great preprint from Emily Finn's lab at Dartmouth talking about, I think it's called the naturalistic fallacy or something like that, talking about how experimenters don't really think about their movie choices in a principled enough way. And and I thought they, they made a lot of great points. But our main motivation for choosing those two was to try to make them maximally different to try and see if we could generalize across all the variation between them
0: yeah that's interesting and i guess one thing that i'm just trying to interrogate in a you know oblique way are my own assumptions about why i think naturalistic stimuli are interesting i guess One of the arguments I've always made with respect to psychological research is that there are these sort of two dimensions of validity. One is how rigorous are you executing the scientific internal structure of your experiment? How well are you controlling for variables? That sort of thing. The other one is external validity. How well are you generalizing to something that actually exists in the real world? And I think these two things are often at odds where the more you dial in your internal validity, the more artificial your, your stimuli become, and therefore the, the less likely they are to make contact with something that actually exists in the natural human environment. And the problem that I think that we have in general in psychology is that it is much, much easier to evaluate and therefore optimize for internal validity. Scientific rigor, controlling for variables, because you can always point at an experiment and be like, look, you failed to control for that variable. That's the that's the issue with this thing. Not like, well, you know, I don't think that's actually representative of how humans, you know, look at other humans when they're watching, you know, an, an hour and a half of a movie, right? That's a much harder critique to land when you're evaluating a paper or a talk or that sort of stuff. And so the thing that it seems like naturalistic stimuli, the reason we should go in that direction is because we have overextended as a field in the direction of prioritizing internal validity, scientific rigor and that sort of stuff. And naturalistic um, stimuli are a sort of panacea against that. And I guess the vague questions I've been asking for the last 10, 15 minutes or whatever are about what are the specific things that they allow us to do? I
1: think that's, definitely a big part of their promise, although you'd be surprised. A lot of people do point to them and say that's not what real world interaction is like, which is also fair, right? And so a question I get asked a lot is this study replicated in large part what we found with controlled stimuli. And so then a natural question is, well, why even bother with these natural stimuli, right? And then if it doesn't replicate it, people are like, well, you didn't replicate it. So there must be something wrong with your natural stimulus. So you sort of wind up in this funny position either way. And so one thing I'm particularly excited about is using the two in conjunction, which we're starting to do now. So there are some seemingly pretty striking differences between the results from my control 2017 study and this 2021 movie study. But we've never tried it in the same thing. There's a million other differences between them too. So one, I think that more careful comparison will be really informative. And then two, I think another big promise is natural stimuli just open the doors to studies with all sorts of different populations that don't want to sit and do your boring to our experiment, right? And so we are also beginning a collaborative project with the Kennedy Krieger Institute here and their autism center to try and to start... Um, scanning individuals with autism on both the controlled and the movie stimuli as well. And I think that's particularly interesting because a lot of lab studies with individuals who are less impacted on the autism spectrum find no differences in their ability to do different social lab-based tasks, despite clear differences in their real-world social perception and social behavior so i think that there's a lot of promise for those as well as well as i mean we were talking about developmental psychology which i also don't do but or and especially developmental neuroimaging talk about heart but i think there's a lot of promise for scanning really young kids with with movies which people have started doing
0: also you mentioned Johns Hopkins. That seems like a really cool place to be doing cognitive science these days. I guess everything's a little screwed up because of the pandemic. And so it probably hasn't been the two years there that you are envisioning. I, I'm actually talking to Paul Smolensky in a little bit, who I know has been instrumental in developing that. And my undergraduate thesis advisor was Alan, who I believe is also there. So it just seems like a great place to be doing cognitive science. What's the what vibe over at Johns Hopkins Cognitive science
1: It is. I feel so lucky to be here. I think it's awesome that we have our own cognitive science department. And I just feel so lucky to be here with all of the amazing expertise we have. And then in addition to our great department, there's also a broader cognitive science community. And like we have a psychological and brain sciences department. We have a lot of fantastic neuroscience colleagues, and it's just such an awesome environment, both because of our department, but also the greater community, the ties to the medical school, which I talked about a
0: little as well. You did your undergraduate at Johns Hopkins, right? Are you from Baltimore originally?
1: I'm not. I'm from upstate New York, from Syracuse, New York, but it's very nice to be back here. I like Baltimore a lot
0: yeah I could totally imagine how coming back to your undergrad institution as a professor like really feels full circle in a way
1: yeah it it's it's really nice, very bizarre, although I feel like now I have my like you know routines that I have in this as an assistant professor which feel different enough from what I did as an undergrad, but sometimes I find myself on parts of campus where I just like feel like I'm eighteen again and it's it's weird
0: <laughs> are you shaping the hearts and minds of of the young children and the way that your hearts and minds were shaped by JHU?
1: I hope so. I teach a lower level visual cognition class. I'm teaching it this semester and it's in person again after being on Zoom for the last couple years. And it's so nice. They're just so engaged and they're such great students. So yeah, that's another big plus of being here is our awesome, both undergrads and grads.
0: Well, I appreciate you telling me about your research and and allowing me to ask some potentially silly, potentially insightful, potentially both questions. And I want to end by asking you, what are three books that have really impacted your thinking?
1: So I think the first one is uh, Vision by David Marr, which, you know, is just a seminal book.
0: I think they would actually revoke your MIT PhD if you didn't.
1: I, th- I think so, if I didn't put that on my list, right? And I, like I mentioned, I'm teaching visual cognition now, and we I have them students read the first chapter, but I, I was revisiting it recently and I was like, why don't we just use this as our textbook? But anyway, yeah, I just think it's a fantastic book for any cognitive scientist to think about. My other two are more contemporary recent picks. So the first is How to Do Nothing by Jenny Odell, which perhaps has a somewhat misleading title, but it's about disconnecting from social media and the internet, which I think there's been a lot written about lately. But I I think in particular, she makes a couple points that really impacted how I think about it. And I feel like that argument is sort of couched in an argument about productivity and how to be more productive. And she kind of pushes back against that, which I liked. And then she talks about alternatives, about how to be engaged in you know, the physical and natural world, in your community, in ways that I thought were really interesting.
0: Jenny O'Dell, what's her background?
1: She is a visual artist. And so it's, it's interesting. She has a very different perspective and different set of hobbies than I do. But I, I enjoyed reading it a lot, perhaps for that reason. Number three was a novel, A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself by Peter Ho Davies. Which is maybe an odd pick. It's the novel about parenting a young child, which I do, but it takes a different perspective from someone who's had very different experiences than me. But the way that he writes about even the like painful and mundane parts, but also the beauty of it, I just thought was really nice changed how I think about a lot of aspects of that as well.
0: Uh, I'm really glad you included that. That sounds really wonderful. I've never read the, that book, but that that's also something that's been happening a lot for me is I've been digging more into, I'm doing my career thing, but like, I also need to do the life thing and really try and dig into that and using novels as a way to do that.
1: I read many more novels than I do nonfiction books. I like to read for pleasure. <laughs> I mean, not that work isn't pleasure, but non work pleasure, I guess.
0: No, I, And that's a change that's happened to me sort of gradually over the last two years. I'd probably say end of grad school,
1: beginning of my postdoc is when I really started reading for non-work
0: regularly. There's a big part of me that doesn't feel like the distinction between reading for work and reading for pleasure are real when you are a psychologist interested in human behavior. It's all a piece of the puzzle. Layla, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. This has been a huge pleasure.
1: Thank you, Cody. It was so much fun. Take care.
0: That was my conversation with Layla Ishik. Usually on this show, I've always maintained that what I'm doing is a true interview, where my portion of contribution to the show is usually like ten to twenty percent of the talking, and the other person does, you know, eighty percent of the talking, and it's about their personal experiences and trajectories and me sort of prompting them and creating space for them to to say that. This was a lot more Cody involved and me in many places giving my perspective in some places, maybe even overstepping and interrupting in a way that I usually don't. So it's something I'm, you know, still getting a feel for. And I thought this was a a fun conversation and a good dive into Layla's research. And part of me thinks like I want to do kind of serious research-based interviews like this. But, you know, another kind of concept that I often think about is, you know, the the conversations that I've most enjoyed having on the show are the ones that don't have any specific focus. They kind of just go all over the place and, and that sort of stuff. And, you know, for example, if you listen to my conversation with Ben Moser, my first conversation with Brian Christian, anything can come up. And I think the default thing that I'll try and do is be more direct about getting into people's research. But I often wonder, what would that alternative be of just having questions about anything that comes up and trying to construct something coherent about that? Like if you had a bunch of questions and they were questions about anything. And so you couldn't control the sort of narrative contour of the conversation you just had to go along with it. Anyway, like I said, if you want to follow along with how the show is going to develop in the future, then definitely please subscribe to my Substack newsletter. That is codycommerce.substack.com. Shout out to Emily Chen. This episode was produced and edited by her. You will definitely be hearing from her in the future both on this show and then in her own show so stay tuned for that thank you emily and thank you to everyone uh who's listening to this episode i'll be back here next week with another episode of cognitive revolution